stories from your community. This is the 519 Podcast, part of the Blackburn Media Podcast Network. Where were you that day? Were you driving when the lights went out? Were you trapped inside an elevator, camping, and completely unaware? At 4.11 p.m. on August 14, 2003, approximately 55 million North Americans found themselves without power. The widespread outage stretched from across parts of Ontario to Michigan, Ohio, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, New Jersey, and New York. On this episode of the 519 Podcast, we look back at the Great Northeast Blackout 20 years later. I was working at a radio station in London. I was doing afternoon news when a little bit after four o'clock, everything just kind of went dark everywhere. That was Scott Kitching, news manager for Blackbird Media. Scott was working at CJBK in London when the electricity went out. It was funny because at first, you know, the power went out in in the city of London and, and elsewhere. But at the time, in that moment, we didn't realize, uh, we didn't know just how widespread it was. And, and when you work in radio news and in the community, you power outages are a fairly common thing. And, you, you know, you get word of a power outage and, and you, uh, you go on the air and you say, you know, power is out in this neighborhood and, and uh, London Hydro says it's going to take this long to get it back. In the meantime, treat, treat traffic lights as four-way stops and uh, it's, it's a fairly common thing. So at first, we didn't realize just how widespread this was. We just thought, oh, here's another power outage. But wow, this this one's actually pretty bigger than usual. And then in the following you know moments, we realized just how big this thing was. And, and we were all kind of astonished by it, frankly. Elsewhere in Ontario, ISO system operator Todd Parsi was on the phone in the main control room for Ontario's power grid. He was working on bringing the voltage up in the Windsor area when an alarm went off. So I looked over at our alarm screen. Uh, My console actually had uh, 11 computer monitors at the time in addition to the wall board. So one of those screens is dedicated just to alarm. So I did see um, some reactive devices operate and then uh, the alarm screen just filled up completely. It was uh, 30,000 alarms later on they figured out in the first minute of the blackout. So really couldn't see it coming. We were operating as normal. We were within normal limits. It just sort of happened. And, and uh, you know, it was, it was a little bit of disbelief. Uh, as you got that number of alarms, there's a lot to take in. Um, the In addition to the alarm screen, we ended up with uh, a lot of audible noises. So each audible noise means something different. And, and it, it's almost like walking into a casino and someone's won the jackpot, but it's, it's a prize you really don't want. All of Ontario east of Wawa lost power, with only small pockets of electricity remaining in the province. This was something that had never happened before, and people were looking for answers. The sheer volume of phone calls that were coming into the newsroom. Because again, like like I said before, you know, when you get power outages in the city, you'll get a couple phone calls. Hey, my power's out. Do you know what's going on? Because this was back in the day before Twitter, before uh, people could get you know, information directly from from places in, in on their phones. People relied on on radio stations for that sort of thing. So I, I think the biggest thing was was just how many phone calls came in in those first, you know, 20 to 30 minutes as as we were realizing just how widespread this power outage was. And I and I think the, the other thing is is probably just the discussions that we had in the newsroom about just the sheer magnitude of this. You know, it 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 
it didn't take long to realize just how how many people were affected. And it was in the tens of millions. So I think that's probably the thing I remember most is just just the the size of of the outage and and how how it disrupted the lives of so many people uh, that day. In the immediate aftermath, like that night, the night of of the uh, of the fourteenth, it was mostly we were just trying to get messages out about you know what to do about the food in your fridge, you know what to do about making sure that you have enough water, enough batteries. And it, there was a lot of talk about, about the importance of having that 72-hour emergency kit. And then in the days that followed, it was, it was really more just the covering and, and talking about the investigation into what caused this cascading power outage. And because so many lives were affected, people were quick to point fingers. In the first few hours of the blackout, speculation ran rampant. So... Initially, the uh, New York uh, mayor had claimed that the blackout started in Ontario. That, that was because the counterpart that I was working uh, with in New York was asked by his boss, what happened? And he said, I don't really know. I just saw the power swing up to Ontario. And of course, someone ran with that. CNN said the Niagara Mohawk power grid was the one that was overloaded. Jean Chrétien, Canada's prime minister at the time, stated lightning had struck a power plant in northern New York, while Canadian Defence Minister John McCallum blamed an outage at a nuclear plant in Pennsylvania. In the end, it was discovered that the widespread blackout actually originated at First Energy, a power corporation in Ohio. There was, uh, like any other major event, um, there was multiple facets to it. Uh, Essentially, though, um, there were some tool problems which caused the system operators to lose situational awareness and some of the portions of the Ohio grid became overloaded uh, and they, they didn't recognize that. And then they had a major generator trip off, which caused a further overloading of um, the transmission system, which, which caused the lines to heat up. So. Unfortunately, there was a lack of vegetation management at the time. So as the lines heated up, they sagged into some trees. And when they contacted the trees, they would trip off and then further overload the other circuits. So it was kind of happening one after the other. And then eventually, it, it, Ohio separated from um, the New York uh, and PJM or Pennsylvania uh, connection and all the power that was feeding Ohio had to swing up through Ontario, out through the Ontario-Michigan interface and back into Ohio. Those those actual swings were uh, to the tune of 4,000 megawatts. And uh, for reference, uh, last week Saskatchewan had a, a, an all-time peak of 3,700 megawatts. So it's enough uh, power to power the province of Saskatchewan swinging back and through, uh, forth through the Ontario and Michigan interfaces in, in within seconds. So um, it's, it's basically caused everything to go unstable and, and, it, and it collapsed. The power surges sent to Ontario and northeastern U.S. overloaded the systems and shut down more than 100 power plants. And once the alarm sounded, Todd and his team immediately began restoration efforts. We've trained on this for years before 2003. So um, it, it really, uh, after that first minute, the, the pregnant pause, if you will, and, uh, you know, we, the training kicks in and you just start to methodically uh, see what you have left and then what you have to work with and then you establish priority. We're just really trying to 
figure out what was left in Ontario at the moment. And then, you know, those small pockets of electricity, we, we, we had to stabilize and make sure they could, uh, would be stable and not collapse themselves. Essentially, restoring the power system is, uh, is very uh, delicate at first. We have a small pocket of generation at load, and we use that to basically add more transmission and more uh, generation to it to, to grow it as much as we can so we can, we can make it larger. So um, the initial stages of restoration is very much like crossing a large pond. It's too big to jump across, so we use stepping stones. So we, uh, we move out from Niagara area and we, we would jump to, uh, to Burlington, say, and then we regain our stability or our balance. And then, you know, we'd make the next step to, uh, to Kitchener. And then from Kitchener, you know, we rebalance again, and then we'd make our next step up to the Bruce uh, kind of thing. So we're really just adding load in the initial phases to control voltage and, and keep equipment within its uh, capability. Um, and then once we get some of the larger units on, like they have operational concerns as well. They need to get to a certain loading point um, at, uh, uh, you know, just because it's, the load is really a heat sink for them. So uh, then we actually start adding load quickly because they're able to sustain larger blocks of load. And, and then, you know, as this uh, island is what we actually call this pocket of power gets bigger, we can take bigger steps. Within four to eight hours, many places affected by the blackout in Canada and the U.S. had their power restored, including parts of London. Other parts of southwestern Ontario, especially those near Bruce Power, also regained their electricity rather quickly. Although the state of emergency was in effect until August 22nd, Ontario's power system was restored within the first 30 hours. While the control booth was hard at work in restoration efforts, many Canadians came together to make the most of the situation. I think the thing that impresses me most is, is you know, even though this was a, an, an, you know, a, a major event and very inconvenient for a lot of people, it was very Canadian where, um, you know, you hear stories about people barbecuing with their neighbors and people directing traffic and stuff like that. So to me, um, there's a sense of pride in that as well. I think everyone uh, helped out. And and that uh, was true the following week when we were still getting generation back online and we had calls for conservation and really everyone did their part. You know, they went without air conditioning and, and that really helped us in the following week as we were able to restore the load. As the power came back on, the consequences of the blackout came to light and they were significant. Without electricity, traffic lights did not work, air conditioning was turned off and people's fridges were out. There were nearly 100 deaths attributed to the blackout, including those of people in homes that became too hot for the vulnerable people that lived in them. There were also deaths from carbon monoxide poisoning from the use of generators, failed at-home medical equipment, and more. A 16-year-old boy in Guelph was also hit by a car while riding his bike home on the dark streets with no lights. Ontario workers lost 18.9 million hours of employment, and manufacturing shipments dropped by $2.3 billion. It was the largest blackout in North American history. That being said, the biggest question on everyone's mind is can it happen again? This is David Robitaille, the current Senior Director of Market Operations at ISO. So the impact remains the same. So the, the assets really haven't changed, right? The amount of wires, the amount of transformers, the amount of generators. The impact has not changed. How we operate it and how they minimize the impact on neighboring areas has changed significantly and that's, you know, 
due in part of the uh, of, uh, of the standards. After the blackout, a Canada-U.S. task force was formed to identify the causes of the outage and seek recommendations to help prevent blackouts from happening in the future. The task force's final report identified 46 specific technical and policy recommendations for minimizing or preventing future blackouts. The biggest impact from the 2003 uh, blackout has been the adoption of mandatory and sanctionable and auditable standards, reliability standards in the industry within North America. So prior to 2003, we had market rules here in Ontario that we needed to adhere to. Uh, but the industry at large within North America did not have a common set of sanctionable reliability standards. If we think about if we, um, you know, take a step back and look at, you know, the causes of the 2003 blackout and maybe stitch those two pieces together. The one thing was tree trimming. So prior to 2003, there were no standards on how to uh, tree trim in, the, in, in North America. And a lot of entities didn't necessarily tree trim to the extent that they should have. So now we have standards on how tree trimming is supposed to take place. So that, that is one key thing. Visibility of the assets from a control room. There were no standards prior to 2003 to say that you need to establish a common set um, or a minimum set of visibility requirements of, of your assets. In, so generators, transmission lines, things of that nature. And now we, we have those. The Great Northeast Blackout of 2003 caused major changes to the way we manage our power systems both locally and internationally, making Ontario better prepared if a blackout of this scale were to happen again. Not only are more rules and regulations put in place to help prevent another large-scale blackout, but training is also a big part in helping workers prepare for major power events. So training is another thing that has been adopted within the standards. We at the ISO, training has been sort of that number one thing that we do um, in order to be successful in what we do. It's taken an, another level post-blackout. And what I mean by that is we didn't have uh, a simulator to train operators prior. Now we have a simulator now. So think of it as, um, you know, an airline pilot simulated airtime. So we have simulated time uh, for our operators in terms of their training program. So they have to spend so many hours training prior to getting, I'll call it licensed to be in the room. And then in order for them to maintain their license, they need so many hours of training, so academic training, if you will, in addition to the, the simulator training. We do simulate blackouts. In fact, we practice, not only do we simulate it internal, I'll call it internal to the ISO in terms of our operators, but we have quarterly restoration exercises with, and I'll call them market participants, so generators and transmitters, people that own assets within, within the province. And we actually go through simulated blackouts. We tend to sort of train on, I'll call it almost devastation, right? So something really bad happening to the power system, and then how do the operators react? So whether that is ice storms, tornadoes, uh, things of that nature, but you know, the aftermath, if you will, of what the transmission system looks like after it, and then how do we restore it? With the changing times and the exponential growth in technology, ISO is now facing a new kind of threat to our grids. Cyber threats are increasing. 
So, you know, how we do our business in terms of how we protect our, call it our digital assets, has gone up quite a bit also. So there's, you know, I spoke of those standards before. So there's the standards on how we operate the system. There's also standards on how we protect critical infrastructure from cyber attacks. Preparing for cyber threats is really no different than preparing for, I'll call it physical threats on, on the system, like mother nature extreme threats, right? So we have a group within the ISO that is dedicated solely for cyber protection and, you know, sort of sifting through cyber threats and training us on what cyber threats look like, responding to cyber attacks. And when I spoke to earlier about um, our restoration activities, well, we have other training that deals with, okay, well, if we had a cyber attack, this is how we manage it from an operating perspective. But back in 2003, when cyber threats were still in their infancy and mobile phones were not as technologically advanced, people weren't one tweet away from being informed. There was no Facebook or Instagram. Radio was the main source for dispersing information to the public. You know, they often say that, that radio is incredibly important in times of crisis um, because it is that, that medium that, that is very responsive in that, that way. And, and, and again, in today's world where we all have you know, phones and everything and we get information very quickly in that regard, but in a, in a situation like a power outage, if your phone isn't charged, well, <laughs> you might be in a, in a little bit of a, a, a pickle there. But, but with radio... You know, if you've got a, a little transistor radio and, and a package of batteries, you're you're still connected. And I think in a lot of ways, that was one of those instances uh, and incidents that that really drove home the importance of of media like radio, because it is it's one of those things where it's 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 free. It's over the air. And if and like I said, if you've got a, a little transistor radio and a package of batteries, well, then, then you're going to get the information that you need. Looking back at the Great Northeast Blackout 20 years later, it's interesting to see how far we've come technologically, yet how devastating a blackout could still be if it happened today. It was a pretty incredible event. The, you know, when, whenever you have a, a situation where suddenly 50 million people, I mean, if, and it really drove home just how much we rely on electricity, right? I mean, how, how everything in our lives is, is so dependent upon it. And when it's quickly and suddenly taken away, it really, I mean, I don't want to go as far as to say, you know, people were thrown back into the stone age or anything, but, but people's lives for that short period of time became very, very different than their, than their regular day to day because they had no electricity. And, and I think if anything, it, it made me realize just how much we take it for granted. This episode of the 519 Podcast written and produced by Patrick Magermans and Haley Cheng. It was hosted by Haley Cheng. The 519 Podcast is a presentation of the Blackburn Media Podcast Network.